So welcome to um, my talk. You're here and it's called Recovering the Positive Doctrine of Sin. <clears throat> so it's an unusual title, Recovering the Positive Doctrine of Sin. I hope you come to understand exactly what I mean by it. <clears throat> and hopefully by the end, I'll understand what I mean by it. <laughs> so 2020 has given us a really good pair of glasses through which to see our serious problems. Uh, the pandemic didn't create our issues, but it has exposed or revealed a lot of issues within ourselves, people turning to um, addictions to handle depression or isolation. People realized how alone they were. Uh, and then also the pandemic revealed and this isolation revealed uh, cultural unrest, uh, race riots, looting, um, further polarization, and people just not getting along as they walk around, just how easily we can get irritated at one another. It makes me think of C.S. Lewis from The Problem of Pain. He said, uh, everyone feels benevolent if nothing happens to me annoying at the moment. Thus easily the man comes to console himself for all his other vices <clears throat> by the conviction that his heart is in the right place and that he wouldn't hurt a fly. In fact, he's never made the slightest sacrifice for a fellow creature. We think we are kind when we're only happy. <clears throat> so there hangs a very thin veil between what we show to people and what lies beneath. And when we face a crisis, when hard times come, when we're really stressed out, we're exposed with what really truly lies beneath. And so this has exposed a lot of optimism that people had of humanity. Uh, I was surprised to hear how much crime we're in the streets of Victoria. You heard people being encouraged to be calm, to be patient, to wear their masks. Yet downtown there was extensive crime. And so all the cities downtown put boards or brown paper on their windows to remove them in the morning so their stuff wouldn't get stolen. Most people would uh, hide their most valuable things and so that they wouldn't be stolen. And some people went out of business because some of these things were stolen from them and they couldn't replace it. I think that optimism in humanity has been on the decline. Uh, you have thinkers like Jordan Peterson and Alan de Baton think that, you know, actually we're not all that we think we are, or as much as the liberal dream would say we are, this kind of humanistic uh, idea of humanity as innocent and virtuous. There's just other problems that cause us to be bad. Um, but we see that there's an increasing cynicism about what humans are made of. We see that in TV shows, uh, and we see it on the news constantly. And so the current pandemic has not created the internal problem, it's revealed the internal problems in ourselves and in our culture. So I think that this is a perfect time for the church to rearticulate the doctrine of sin. <clears throat> I think it's actually something that is good for our society to believe in. It has a profound diagnosis and offers a solution. 
but the church, uh, I want to have three qualifications before I get into the main bulk of my talk, which I'll explain, I'll lay out for you in a minute. But one, my first qualification is when I say that the church should re-articulate the doctrine of sin, I don't mean that the church should heap more burdens on a crumbling society um, just as it has done in the past or so often has done in the past. I don't think that we should try to exasperate or crush the spirit of people. Rather, I just want to put just enough weight on the shoulders, or at least the churches should put just enough weight on the shoulders so that people might bend their knees in repentance and raise their hands in thanksgiving. But so often, sin is the first and last word coming from the pulpit. And when sin is the first and last word coming from the pulpit or from the church, I think that does crush people. So we need to see the doctrine of sin in a larger framework. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I want to do, because the doctrine of sin does not float by itself. It cannot exist on its own, <clears throat> and it's all interdependent with the larger framework. And the larger framework I'm going to talk about is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So sin is not the first word in that story, and nor is it the last word. And so I think it has a positive framework, and that we can't actually understand goodness in the world or our hope and salvation without the doctrine of sin. So the doctrine of sin points in all these directions of positive aspects of what it means to even believe in the doctrine of sin. So that's what I mean by recovering the positive doctrine of sin. And so I think that maybe even pastors and churches need to think about how we might recover the doctrine of sin as something positive, or at least as something within the framework. Because a lot of churches um, have either overemphasized, but in other ways, the church has also minimized and diminished or abandoned the doctrine of sin because of my second qualification. However, this doctrine of sin is articulated, with all its positive aspects, it will mostly be disbelieved by society. Uh, in spite of the evidence for the past 100 years of showing that society and ourselves, that there's something deeply wrong, uh, the doctrine of sin is something that's belittled, uh, ridiculed, and dismissed. It's, uh, and it's not just simply because the church has had a bad posture when it's articulated the doctrine of sin. It's because the doctrine of sin says that each of us are morally accountable before God and that when we stand before him, we will find that we have morally failed and are justly judged and condemned by God's justice. And so this strikes at the heart of people and people will rebel at the very notion of a personal God having such judgments toward them. Now, and this is why the church has often minimized, because they're trying to soften the blow. But when they soften the blow of the doctrine of sin, they actually minimize the power of the gospel. And they minimize the solution society needs to hear. Yet there's something is wrong with the world, and people have to come up with some kind of reason what is wrong with the world. And so I'm going to look at three alternative diagnoses and solutions. So secular diagnoses and solutions 
three of them before I get into the positive aspects of the doctrine of sin. My last and third qualification is that my colleagues have done a very excellent job in talking about the doctrine of sin uh, or the implausibility of sin in the modern world, particularly Andrew Fellows and Dick Kyes. I highly recommend them. They have done better work than I have done, but I think that I still add something. Um, and so I would really recommend you to hear them. And my aim will be how might we see this doctrine of sin as something that we might hear in our current cultural moment. <clears throat> and so this is something I'm trying to think through. But how might the doctrine of sin be seen within its total framework? And how might it prepare us for the good news of Jesus? <clears throat> so, okay, so I'm going to look at three secular diagnoses. Uh, and I basically riff on Andrew Fellows on this. Uh, if you want to pursue my three comments, my, my three uh, explanations of these diagnoses, if you want something more full, then I encourage you to listen to Andrew Fellows' lecture, um, Is Sin Plausible in the Modern World, which is on the English Libri podcast. But there's three problems with the world, according to secular philosophy or ideology. <clears throat> And it's either the problem is with nature or with nurture or with society. Those are the three main culprits that people blame. And I want to look at these in turn. So first, the problem is nature. The problem in our world is a result of our evolutionary development out of our animal brains or out of our lizard or reptilian brains. We are hardwired to be selfish. So Dawkins speaks of the selfish gene. Neurosciences speak of self-serving cognitive bias. And biology speaks of the aggression gene. Because of our evolutionary development, a development that is ultimately non-personal uh, and non-purposeful, because of our evolutionary development, we are predisposed to certain selfish behaviors, especially at the individual level. Now, within this worldview, the problem being nature, we don't need philosophers or theologians. Rather, we need scientists. Scientists are the priesthood for what ails us. They're able to look at genetics and determine why someone acted in this or that way. We see an increasing number of scientists speaking and coming in on moral matters. Uh, why would this why would a person be predisposed to be conservative or liberal, believe in God or not, uh, have a particular sexual orientation? And yet in such a deterministic framework, within one, mind you, is impersonal, non-purposeful. Within such a deterministic framework, what accountability might there be for the Holocaust? What about a genetic predisposition toward racism? Can they be held accountable morally? Within this deterministic view, we see the disappearance of true moral agency. And therefore, a, we lose a logical, consistent accountability. I mean, even if one could make an argument that certain morals should exist for the benefit of a broader group, like altruism, makes sense not at the individual level, but at the corporate level, 
Um, even if you could make an argument that certain morals should exist, like for the continuance of our survival, no one can make an argument why one should care about our continuance or about our welfare. So even if you say certain morals benefit our species, no one can say, well, but you are morally expected to do so. Okay, that's the first problem. The second problem that is explained, and so I talked about uh, nature as the problem, scientists as the priesthood, um, and the solu um, solution is scientific knowledge, but that it leaves us without moral agency or moral accountability. So each of these have a solution, priesthood, and problem. <clears throat> so nurture, what's the problem? The problem is the result of our environment, environmental factors, bad parenting, experience in schools, child abuse, abuse, sexual abuse, and so on can cause depression, anxiety, addictions, and phobias that result in bad behavior in relationships and society. Um, so childhood trauma can cause lifelong struggles. But instead of a theologian or a scientist, the therapist is the priest. Instead of the gospel, one needs medicine and therapy. Within this worldview, one is not so much guilty for a moral action as much as a victim of a disorder that is a result of an environment. Now, you can imagine someone to come and call someone a sinner in light of this, becomes, it sounds very cruel and exploitative. And I'll speak about this in a minute. I'm actually going to affirm all these in some degree. So don't think that I'm just setting them up to knock them down and throw them away. I think the Christian should take all these seriously. So don't mishear me. But with this one, as with nature as a problem, this too can minimize moral responsibility. Simply because a mass murderer had a traumatizing upbringing does not excuse their going into a black church in Charleston. While therapy can bring healing, can it bring renewal to the heart? Can it bring re moral renewal, transformation? Uh, I think that's what this was wonderfully asked in the TV series called The Sopranos. Uh, Tony Soprano is this mob boss, and he seeks therapy because he's being anxious. He's having uh, regrets over murdering people. It's a very stressful job. And so the therapist takes on Tony Soprano, knowing that he finds, she finds out that he's a mob boss, but keeps on because she feels that with enough therapy, that he'll have enough moral resolve to re and once he gets healthy, then he'll realize that his life is not as it should be. But what ends up happening throughout the, throughout the series, and she faces a crisis near the end, not the total end, um, is that it doesn't convict his moral conscience, what it actually does is make him a well-adjusted mob boss, um, a mob boss that is able to handle the adversities in his line of work. And in fact, it turns him into a likable moral monster. Third alternative diagnoses. One is the problem with nature. The second is the problem with nurture. This one is the problem of society or with society. Now, here the problem is, again, an external factor, but it's placed squarely on society and on social structures, not on the personal. What leads to damaging behavior is poverty, bad, educa bad education, redlining, 
a lack of representation on TV. So blame falls on systemic racism, sexism, or heteronormativity, to name a few sins. <clears throat> I'm not saying that these are good. I'm just saying that this is the language of sin in society. So the individual is not so much to blame as the system itself. So this can be seen in a variety of thinkers throughout history. A lot of people point to Rousseau and Nietzsche. Uh, but currently, I think the most pronounced one is critical theory. I've spoken a lot on that, um, and so I'm not going to revisit it in detail here. But you can listen to my talk on is social justice the end goal of Christianity on the podcast. But the basic problem, according to critical theory, is the world is under structural oppression coming from those who regulate a morality that benefits only those in power. So it's basically those who are in power get to regulate morality and everyone has to live by that, but it's oppressive. So there's massive inequality. So instead of a geneticist or a therapist, we have the social scientist as the priest. And while there's no explicit use of the word sin, there are many synonyms such as homophobia, transphobia, whiteness, racism, sexism, and so on. And so the solution for such societal problems is a radical overhaul of the structures and the laws to enforce a newly regulated equality in morality. Often it's very idealistic. When the church preaches the doctrine of sin within this context, it is seen as intolerant and hateful, simply seeking to maintain its own stranglehold of power over a society that simply wants to be free from their archaic vision. Okay, so let me review. So there's the three diagnoses that focus on the problem of within nature, nurture, and society. And yet Andrew Fellows says so profoundly, I can't say it better than him, there is a confusion for sim uh, of symptoms for the cause. There's a confusion of symptoms for the cause. The Christian should not deny that there is truth in each of these diagnoses. The Christian believes that sin is not just a bad action, but that sin permeates through all things. That's including nature, nurture, and society, and structures themselves. So the Christian does not deny this. The doctrine of sin affirms them, but as symptoms of a deeper cause, a root problem in the human heart, in humanity itself. Um, the Bible makes an important distinction that these three diagnoses don't get to. Um, they don't get to the root because they deny the originally good creation as something distinct from the fall. Uh, what I mean is that these three diagnoses hold good and evil as primary to reality. Now, some even would say good and evil are just labels that we have to reality, but they're arbitrary constructs. It's just a part of what it is, evolutionary development. And so what you have at the beginning is you have good and evil at work in the very beginning of nature. To deny... Um, but to deny uh, these aspects of good and evil, to deny this distinction between a good creation and a fall, is, to um, is not to allow us the truth of our situation and denies us the ability to receive the solution, namely salvation in Jesus. 
So with that, I want to turn to the positive aspects um, uh, of the doctrine of sin, or at least seeing the doctrine of sin within its positive framework. So sometimes the Christian doesn't know why Jesus is the answer. Uh, I think that, you know, there's always this famous anecdote that pastors always tell, and it talks about how, and there's detailed differences, but there's, there's a, a group of kids in a Sunday school, and the Sunday school teacher holds up a, a cutout of a frog. She's just going to teach a story, you know, frog hopping along or something. And she goes, do you know what this is? And all the children are deadly quiet until one brave boy raises his hand and says, I know the answer is Jesus, but it looks like a frog. <laughs> uh, I often feel that Christians know the answer is Jesus, but are unsure how Jesus is the answer in such a tumultuous time as ours. I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure looks like political action is our salvation. So I'm suggesting that for us to understand how Jesus is the answer, we must understand the doctrine of sin in its context. We don't need a savior if we don't have the doctrine of sin. Jesus in his death can appear as spiritual manipulation if sin is not a reality. So imagine this. You see a person. They want to declare their love for you. And so you're standing beside them and they jump off the bridge declaring their love for you. They crash into the river below and die. Well, how do you feel about their declaration of love? You feel manipulated. Probably have troubled emotions trying to know how to figure it out. But imagine that you are actually drowning in that river and someone on top of that bridge jumps off and they rescue you from certain death they, um, and they save you, but by doing so, they themselves die. You're not manipulated, you're rescued. Yet, what if you show no sign of caring of what that person did for you? It's a rejection of their love. It's like the height of hubris and self-interest. So it makes all the difference in the world if you're dying or not on how we see Jesus. So is Jesus the one jumping, is dying on the cross with nothing to do with you, or is it actually rescuing you from the entanglement of sin? So as I said that we need, uh, so that's how I want to lay out the doctrine of sin and uh, so that we might understand that it is the real uh, diagnosis in order to prepare us for the true solution. So as I said earlier, sin is not the first word or the last word we should speak. And literally in the story, it is not creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So the fall, so sin is the second word. That's the broad trajectory. Now, what the doctrine of sin does is that it points backwards and it points forwards. It points back to creation, a good creation and a creator, and it points forward to redemption and deliverance, and liberation. So I'm going to deal with five positive aspects, and I'm going to be dealing with it through this narrative framework. If you want a fuller treatment of this, Dick Kies has a six-part series on the plausibility of sin in the modern world. Um, or you can read 
Cornelius Plantigas Jr.'s uh, book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Brevery of Sin. I recommend that. <clears throat> so I have five positive aspects to the doctrine of sin, and I hope to apply them in some regards to some cultural relevance. Um, but simply, I'm wanting to lay them out in contrast to the three diagnoses that don't leave us with moral responsibility um, um, uh, or others. Okay, so number one, positive aspects to the doctrine of sin. First, uh, as I said, sin points backwards. And I want to say sin indicates that there is a transcendent personal creator. Uh, it makes no sense to say that sin is something just otherwise. It, it indicates that there's a, a personal transcendent creator and that there's a moral obligation that we have failed in. But I want us to see that there's a positive aspect to this, not the failure as the first point, but that there is a very creator of reality, of this world and universe or universes, whatever it is. So to understand that we have rebelled against a transcendent creator, is profound. I want you to get a grasp of this, is that morality, therefore, so when we talk about sin, morality is not the possession of human power, but rather it belongs to someone who stands outside of creation and over creation. That means there's one that stands over the lawgivers. It stands over the judges. The Supreme Court is not the arbiters of morality. Neither is it in the hand of totalitarians and authoritarians. Neither is democracy or popular opinion, which can easily turn into mob rule. Uh, we can simply look back to the environmental destruction caused by all countries around the world, to some lesser or greater extent, depending on their influence, uh, to see that we need an answer outside of creation. And so the Christian looks to one who's the transcendent creator, who's outside of the frame. That means while we are subject to the whims of time and space and to the power plays of politics and of society, the creator is not. The creator transcends um, and therefore secures moral absolutes. And it removes um, it from those who would say they are the final arbiters. So someone can take hold of morality, but they can't sustain it. They too shall perish. A nation shall perish, but God lives forever. And so that's just the first positive, is that sin is saying that we're morally obligated to the transcendent creator, but let's not lose that there's a transcendent creator in this framework. The second positive aspect is that sin indicates that there is a corruption of something that was originally good. The doctrine of sin not only points to a creator who's transcendent, but to the creation that he reveals as very good. So sin points to something in our hearts that something's been distorted. Something is wrong with the world. It's not supposed to be this way. So what is is not what has always been, and it's not what it should be. I think that that's what we feel. But so the major fault of the three alternative diagnoses, nature, nurture, society, it starts with the reality that is good and evil. 
There's not a prior good creation. Um, and so it ends up struggling with how to make society morally accountable. How can it make people morally accountable? Because what is has always been. So if there's any morality, it becomes arbitrary. And so I say that our hearts rebel against the very idea that goodness and evil are equal. Um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Liz's favorite poet, <clears throat> says in response to the Industrial Revolution that was wrecking the English countryside that he loved, that in spite of the smear of man's toil, there lies deep down good things. So we lament when we see evil overwhelm good things. <clears throat> now, yes, it does seem that pain and destruction can happen so easily, but in spite of its apparent power, our hearts cheer for the good, good's victory over the bad, over the evil. Even if the good won its victory through its own death, so imagine a father makes a sacrifice to save his family from an evil intruder. Even though that the fa father has died, he saved his family from an intruder, there's something that our hearts rejoice in. Our cries for justice point to a reality, and even the ideological dreams or the utopic dreams that people have through political process still points that there should be a reality better than what it is. It's the Bible that points most clearly to that resonance. It's only the Bible that points to a creation that is very good. Now, let me get a little sidetracked here. One might ask about the progressive nature of evolution. Doesn't evolution lead us to a higher or better place, um, a better reality? Why not take it that we started with animal brains and evolve to spiritual brains into a higher consciousness as Karen Armstrong suggests. Yes, it started with tribal violence, but aren't we moving toward a more peaceable kingdom? Or at least a peaceable end? One, I'm unsure if we can argue that we are. I think that the best we can do is argue that we've simply become more complex, not necessarily better because we can wreak havoc more quickly now, like the advancement of the atomic bomb. Furthermore, I would respond that by saying this is simply importing a narrative on an impersonal, non-purposeful narrative, or narrative, quote unquote. It's just a theory, and I believe that many evolutionary, uh, strict evolutionary theorists are basically hijacking the biblical narrative and importing it onto evolutionary theory. Um, and if you presume that something is getting better, <clears throat> you need a God um, that is moving it toward and sustaining it toward that end. But if you do, you're just back to affirming what's written in the Bible. So if we are truly consistent with a non-purposeful, impersonal reality, we would say that the end goal of humanity is happenstance, that means accidental, aimed toward the pursuit of pleasure and power. That's how Yuval Harari puts it. He reinterprets the Declaration of Independence. 
because the Declaration of Independence is rooted, yes, many deists were writing it, but it's rooted in the biblical notion of, of progress, and then later on I'll say in, in the inherent dignity of the human being, <clears throat> which are biblical notions. So while it's consistent with this deterministic explanation, evolutionary theory, it cuts against what we feel and what we long for. So the doctrine of sin is positive because it points to our original state as very good, but in its present state, something is wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So sin points backwards to a good creator. It points to a good creation, originally good creation. And thirdly, it points to human dignity. Lost human dignity, but still moral agency, moral responsibility, moral accountability. So as a part of a very good creation, every human being is made to have inherent dignity. That's what the Christian believes. Let us make humanity in our image, said God, <clears throat> after our likeness. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them. That means that we are made in God's image. And being made in God's image means that we have inherent dignity, but that inherent dignity also means a moral responsibility to God and to creation. <clears throat> so we must understand the nature of sin in light of this reality, this positive reality. So Adam and Eve were commanded to be like God. Now, they weren't commanded to be like God in his transcendence. We talked about God as transcendent. So Adam and Eve were not commanded to know everything to be all powerful, something like that. But rather they were commanded to uh, live out his moral character, his love, his holiness. This means that being created finite was not bad. It wasn't bad that they were created finite because they were not expected to be transcendent. They were expected to be moral as God is moral. So in their created natures, they were able to live freely according to God's moral character. <clears throat> they had moral agency. And through this obedience, Adam and Eve would be free and bless the world. That means everything would be free, not in bondage, in harmony, productive, and good. That's what it meant to be created in the image of God. Now, part of that obedience was to refrain from eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> Yet, Adam and Eve, we know the story, Adam and Eve chose to be like God for reaching for not his moral character, but for his transcendence. They wanted to tra transcend their dependence on him by taking the fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And ever since then, Humanity seeks to be the final arbiters of morality and as a result, bring death and destruction into nature or into creation. So how can that be positive? Well, the biblical view of humanity does not start negatively. It starts positively. So that means every human person, no matter how sinful, how terrible, no matter how badly damaged, no matter how victimized, They've been made in the image of God. And as a result, have an inherent dignity as a creation of God. This is what the Bible attests and reveals. 
And so at Labrie, as each person passes through our doors, as each of you pass through our doors, and as you pass through the Zoom lens, I receive you as a gift of God, as one having inherent dignity, because God has told me <clears throat> through his revelation. Now, there's also a modern notion of human dignity, but it's borrowed. It's borrowed from the biblical narrative. There's no other solid foundation to believing in the inherent dignity of the human person. <clears throat> it's not the only attempt, but it's the only solid foundation. We cannot bear the thought that our dignity in the universe is an illusion. It's just, we can't stand that really we're ghosts in the machine in an impersonal universe that doesn't care about us. <clears throat> the, the Bible does not paint Humanity is fully determined, as modern theorists do, just, our, just my genetic predisposition. Nor does the Bible paint the human as free-floating to do whatever they want. Rather, our dignity being made in the image of God, which already shows you the constraints, that there's a reflection of a personal God. Our dignity <clears throat> makes sense only in light of our relationship to the Creator and to his moral character. While we continually take up the deceit of the serpent to be morally autonomous, that means to kind of choose what we, how to be moral as we wish, we are quickly cut short because moral relativism <clears throat> ultimately exploits human dignity. It damages others. If I can do whatever I want, I'm not going to just probably damage myself, I'm going to damage others, exploit others, exploit nature. So how are we to maintain dignity and absolute moral autonomy or moral freedom? We can't. It's impossible. So what we do instead is we create a committee, put together something called the International Human Rights. But if you ask the authors the basis for those rights, they will shrug their shoulders and say, I'm not sure. Okay, so Doctrine of Sin was looking backwards to the transcendent creator, to a good creation, and to the inherent dignity of the human person. These are positive things that we can discover from the Doctrine of Sin. Four, this, is, this gets us into the muck of the actual Doctrine of Sin. This moves us from creation to the fall. Sin implicates all of us. Sin implicates all of us. That means internally and internationally. So I have shown that the doctrine of sin points backwards to a transcendent creator, good creation in humans as an image of God. Now I want to look at what it means to be, quote unquote, sinful. So I want to say that sin implicates all of us in two ways. First, it means that none of us are righteous. None of us are righteous, not even one. So it's universally applied. Two, it means that there's no aspect within any of us that is free from the effects of sin. That means our reason, our will, our feelings, whatever we want to call on to give us freedom uh, is affected by sin, according to the Bible. So everyone and everything about us are tainted by sin because we have severed ourselves off from the perfect transcendent creator who wants to lead us and to show us his 
ways of life in his creation. So how can this be positive? So one, universal sin, the notion that sin is universal, affects everybody, is actually really good news. It means it's the great leveler. Just as death is. It doesn't mean it matter how rich or poor, how beautiful or ugly, how popular or despised, how, wish, um, how wise or foolish, you're going to die. Death is a great leveler. And so you have no advantage over another person. In the same way, we're all sinful. We have no advantage over another person. No one stands above another person morally. I don't stand morally better than you. And vice versa. Think about that. We all fall short of the glory of God. Now, Alan de Baton is a secular, popular thinker. He wrote a book called Religion for Atheists. He's written many other books, but it's within this book that he's, he said that, this, the, that um, the doctrine of original sin or universal sin is the greatest of all church doctrines because it simply means that the priest should understand that it's just one beggar trying to show the other beggars where the bread is. <clears throat> it calls us each to be humble. This means we can't demonize those we vehemently disagree with. We can't demonize political enemies, for instance, whether they're liberal, conservative, socialists, or capitalists, Biden or Trump. Um, Solzhenitsyn said famously when he was asked, because um, he survived the gulags in Russia, and asked if these people who put him in the gulag should be killed. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it, was, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Wow, this is a man that is taken the doctrine of original sin and that we all fall short of the glory of God and in applying it in a real political situation. He's not taking it out on those who imprison him in these terrible gulags. But said, if I do that, where do we end? Because I know good and evil divides my own heart. That is humility under God. And that's super positive about the doctrine of sin. Now, I want us to understand that this doesn't mean that we should become moral relativists. A lot of people take this notion for moral relativism. That means you do what you want to do. I do what I want to do. Um, I'm guilty of sin. How can I judge you? I can't. Now, some people will point out the story uh, to kind of... Uh, amplify and, uh, and teach this kind of moral relativism through Jesus. Because, uh, so you hear this even in the church where this woman is caught in adultery and she's brought to Jesus and the law says by these uh, law keepers and they say, hey, the law says that we're supposed to throw rocks at this woman to kill her as a judgment. What do you say, Jesus? Jesus is drawing in the dirt and he said, <clears throat> Well, the, first, uh, the one who has no sin can cast the first stone. They all sit there, they wait, they wait, and then they start filing away because none of them are innocent in the eyes of the law. 
That's right. And the youngest, the youngest are the most idealistic. It's true. That's good. That's good that you know that story so well. And, uh, well, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, has anyone condemned you? She says, no one has. He goes, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. <clears throat> now, this story is often taken to mean that none of us should judge another uh, since we're all guilty under the law. Now, to some extent, that's true. But it's not a story that teaches moral relativism. Jesus doesn't tell the, women, um, tell the woman, just shake it off, shake it off, shake it off. He says, go and sin no more. God's moral absolutes remain in place, but we must recognize that we have all fallen short of them. It doesn't mean that we should do away with the absolutes or God's moral um, uh, requirements, but that we do fall short of them. <clears throat> so what this universality of sin also means, that there's nothing outside of God that can make us God-like. And so the first one, I was saying that we're all sinful, it's international, but now I'm talking about the internal. So this is the notion of total depravity. So that means to use anything in creation, whether it's our reason, our will to power, our best intentions, is to make an idol. An idol is ultimately a God substitute. How can we accomplish what God does without him? And so we often look to our minds, we look to our will, we look to party or policy or therapist or education or structural overhaul to cure the hearts of sin or cure the hearts of evil think thinking or immorality or whatever it's called injustice because when you're trying to do that it's like trying to dig yourself out of a hole you're going in the wrong direction now martin luther king jr was right when he said that well a policy may not cure us of racism but at least will protect me from getting lynched. So that's true. The Christian should agree that there needs to be structural changes in society to restrain the effects of sin. The Bible um, calls for us to do that. However, today people are looking to elections and courts and violence to cure society, to bring that ultimate peace. So what we're doing is we're trying to look to something external to change something internal. Yet this, in the words of Jeremiah, biblical prophet, this is applying a superficial treatment to a fatal wound. The fatal wound is the heart in rebellion against a personal God. So what we need alongside structural changes is um, also a changed heart. And we see this in the New Testament. That when hearts are changed, structures are transformed. They go hand in hand. Changed hearts is what overthrew slavery. Also, structural change, bit by bit, through Wilberforce. So if we don't have an understanding of humanity as essentially responsible to God, um, and biologically or socially bent against one another, we cannot expect the transformation of hearts. Rather, what we end up doing is demanding, as many nations have done through history, behavioral changes by enforcing morality through certain means, legislation, punishment, public shame, and so on. 
So the doctrine of sin points us in the direction that not only we need structural change, but also transformed heart through forgiveness. So that's the last word of, that's the last word for sin is for hope. What I mean by that is I'm going to my last point. I said that terribly, or I wrote it terribly and I repeated it. So I did a double <laughs> problem. Uh, so, so the sin, doctrine of sin points us to the transcendent creator, good creation, uh, inherent dignity being made in God's image, and also has pointed us to the universality of sin, not only with to all people, but also within. But this doctrine of sin also looks forward, and it points in the direction of our need for a savior, something outside of structural change, something outside of us, outside of creation, that might come in to transform our hearts. So this leads me to my final positive aspect. The doctrine of sin points beyond itself to the solution that is needed. So listen to this. After Adam and Eve sinned against God, in God's curse of Satan in Genesis 3, God expresses the seeds of the gospel. As soon as God calls out sin, he also calls humanity back and points to a salvation that only he could bring forth. So even when God spoke the doctrine of sin, as it were, a curse, he implied the seeds of the gospel as well. So God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that through the seed of the woman, so that means the, the descendant, her offspring, Satan would be overthrown. And so this shadowy promise that we hear in Genesis becomes crystal clear through the New Testament, through the coming of Jesus. So if we've all fallen short of the glory of God, if no one's righteous, God himself is the only one who's able to accomplish reconciliation. He's the injured party. And this is exactly what happens. This shows that God's intent in declaring our failure, our moral failure, was not to diminish our humanity, but to tell us the truth of ourselves so that he might offer the salvation to those who trust in him. So the positive framework of the doctrine of sin is this diagnosis to point to the only way out of our self-imposed darkness and out of God's just condemnation. So without the doctrine of sin, we can't understand salvation. Now, some people want to deny that they're sick because they can't bear the thought of it being true or its implications, what if I am really sick? But it's only when we discover the right diagnosis that we're able to face it squarely and deal with it. So the sick know that they need a doctor. It's interesting to me that those who are most wanting Jesus and his salvation in the, in the gospel accounts are those who are most clearly knowing that they fail by every measuring stick. I mean, one could even say that those most marginalized by society, most marginalized by the church, are the ones who have the clearest eyesight on who Jesus is and what he brings. It's those who deny their sickness that remained in their sins. And a lot of them were priests. They were blind to see who Jesus was or what he offered. So they rejected the very thing that God offered them, forgiveness. 
So again, we see the marvelous nature of the salvation in light of the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin, and so, hear me out here. The doctrine of sin and salvation is not saying that we're simply full of mistakes, but that we are desperately entrapped by sin. Not sins, but sin. The state of sin. Sin is not simply what we do, but it's our very state of being. And that's why in Psalm 70, um, 51, it says that we are in the state of sin in conception. We haven't done anything. <laughs> Our parents have done something, but we haven't done anything. The child has done no wrong, but nevertheless is considered in sin. But that state is not to end us in despair because God's forgiveness is extended to all who will receive it. But this is the important point I want to highlight by talking about it's not just our mistakes, but by our state of being. I mean, that seems like really heavy. It almost seems that we should be in full despair because it's a hopeless situation. But I want us to understand that Jesus, Jesus's salvation that he offers is not just to cover up our mistakes. One can assume that his forgiveness is simply giving us a blank slate here, I'm going to wipe away your sins. Now, just don't mess it up. And then we write on the blank slate. We mess it up, and he erases it a little bit perturbed. We, make an, we write something else on it the next day. He erases it, getting a little upset. Well, by the 2,000th time, he's like, I'm done. You failed. No, Jesus offers complete forgiveness because we are in a state of sin. It's not that he's just forgiving our mistakes. He's forgiving our very state. And so the Bible points to a complete forgiveness. The Bible points to Jesus' salvation as complete as we remain in him. And so often uh, a pastor at the church will offer a benediction and says, now to him, speaking of Jesus, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless through the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all the people say, Amen. That's from Jude, verse 24 and verse 25. It's beautiful. And we hear that in many places in the Bible of God's eternal assurance. The assurance for the sinner, quote-unquote, is to encourage someone to persevere in the mercy of Christ with freedom, not continually weighed down as a sinner, but free to confess and move onwards. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's what Paul writes in, to the churches in Galatia. And very briefly, lastly, this means that we await... Uh, the last positive aspect um, uh, as a part of this looking forward is that we await for God's kingdom to come in fullness, where he will fully not just liberate our hearts, where we will be made perfect, totally free from sin, but all of creation will no longer be subject to frustration, as Paul says in Romans. And so this means we cannot construct the kingdom on earth, but rather we raise our empty hands receive God's direction so that his kingdom comes as we await his kingdom. 
and served him on earth. Okay, so let me conclude. I've tried to express what it means to embrace the doctrine of sin as something positive. The doctrine of sin is seen within the framework of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We see that the doctrine of sin looks backward to the transcendent creator who stands over the vagaries of history, um, over the whims of people and humanity, over the wars, to the, uh, that it points back to the good creation with our hearts remember and to our being made in God's image, pointing to our moral agency and our moral responsibility. The doctrine of sin also states that we have all sinned and fall short to the glory of God, keeping us humble as we look to God's standards and states that nothing within us can achieve that salvation within our culture or within ourselves. But instead, the doctrine of sin points us forward by planting the seeds of the gospel. Since we are helpless to cure our societies, because we're helpless to cure our own hearts, no matter how much knowledge, therapy, or law we have, we can rejoice that God promised from the very beginning his salvation, a salvation that he effected through the death and resurrection of Jesus, who calls sinners to himself so that their hearts may be transformed and that society might be healed substantially as we all await for when God will make that salvation complete to all, to all things. Now, you may think I've tricked you into a whole lecture of the biblical trajectory. I kind of have. But you might think that I just snuck the doctrine of sin in there to kind of tell the story of the gospel and the whole story. But what I wanted to show is that the doctrine of sin is vital to each aspect. It's not a doctrine that you can give or take. And it's not something that stands on its own. Rather, it's all a part, it's all the warp and woof of the, the biblical narrative. We cannot have the fullness of the gospel without the doctrine of sin. And that's good news. Okay, so that's where I end. Uh, this is a moment at Labrie. Uh, as many of you know, that we, are, we have discussion. Can I speak? Yes, you may, Greg. Yeah, yeah uh, I really liked what you said. You said this, uh, sin is not what we do but about our state of being. I never quite saw it that way. Or I saw it that way, but in different words. I was thinking about, like, I think the biblical message is the condition of our heart. Yes. So I just saw it draw a parallel between the condition of our heart and what you used as the term state of being. So then, and there I go back to, uh, you know, you had your three points at the beginning, the second one being nurture. And so, when you, so then sin becomes... Nurture has got to be part of the whole thing. I, th I think like, the, the common perception of sin amongst Christians and non-Christians, certainly among non-Christians, is the stuff we do. If I go out and rob a bank, that's a sin, period. You know, I mean, it's, it's what I did. But if, with the nurture, certainly that has got to impact. I mean, Jesus says, who much is given, much is expected. So I think that nurture maybe plays a, a, a little larger role than sort of what you indicated. Like I happen to have li lived a very privileged life. And so I figure much is expected of me and I'm falling short. <laughs> but, you know, for somebody who's been, you know, kicked around from one foster home to another, for example, you know, or been sexually or physically abused, you know, uh, that certainly less is expected. So sin means, some. ultimately sin is something different for me 
than it is for somebody else. It's not the same thing. You know, um, our, our actions are, are different that way. I just wonder what you think of that. Right, no, thank you. That's a very, that's an excellent question. Um, I think everyone could hear in here. Okay. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I think Lewis was, C.S. Lewis talked about how there might be a woman who sits in the, uh, the church service and she sits there and nothing has ever been wrong with her and she's all dressed and she's sitting there in the pride of her heart. And there is uh, someone at the back of the church who's had a troubled life and, and yet he's, he's crying out to God and he said that the state of that man is better than the state of that woman. Mm. Uh, and so I think that in a sense that there should be much much responsibility for those who have been given much and how easy it is for us to uh, and perhaps a greater temptation to take those good things that have happened to us to our credit rather than as gifts of God and to live humbly in receiving them and trying to live them out. And sometimes the person who has had a very difficult life um, is more quick to see their need for forgiveness and salvation. Uh, and yes, there, I want to be careful not to put too strong of a contrast of, uh, um, of degrees. Uh, you know, sometimes people will kind of cultivate sin lists. You know, what's the greater sin? You know, uh, and surely, you know, uh, someone not paying taxes uh, doesn't seem as egregious as murdering 30 people. So w wouldn't one be judged more harshly than the other? And I would say certainly I, I, I want to be careful not grading which sin is worse than the other. Because the whole that goes back to get to what you know what we're talking about. You know, it's the condition of the heart, or you know, our state, a state of being. You That's know, right. as opposed to what it specifically is that we do. That's right, and so I think that there's this double, double thing happening. I don't know what the right word is. I don't have the vocabulary or the or the idea for it yet. But this notion that when we are forgiven. You know, Christians will still stand in judgment before God. You know, Paul says that whatever we do, good or bad, so it doesn't mean just the bad things that we've done that will be judged, but also the good things. Uh, Jesus talks about reward, treasures in heaven, and these types of things. And so there will be an assessment of our life, even though we are forgiven. So there's like a double judgment in a sense. Paul speaks about... Uh, you know, make sure you don't lay any other foundation except Christ, because what you might, what might happen is that you might escape through the flames only with your life in hand. Um, and so they survive the ultimate judgment of God, but they have nothing to show. Mm. And so in some sense, there's an assurance that salvation is complete. Yet at the same time, we're not called to just sit, uh, that we're called for, we're supposed to um, pursue Christ in all things. Uh, and so I would say that the person who has had a difficult life should not excuse their environment for not striving after Christ. And also I would say the person who's had a very privileged life 
should not sit on the laurels of their privilege and think that they don't need to go much further than the other person. Because I think that we all fall so far back. Uh, it's almost like saying, uh, let's use a ruler to judge who's done better in life. Uh, and so maybe I'm at the, uh, the four inch mark, Greg, you're at the seven inch mark, and then maybe someone is at the one inch mark. And yet the, 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 the measurement that we all must get to is infinity. So it doesn't matter if you're one inch, five inches, seven inches, we all fall infinitely short. Now, I do think that God will judge us uh, in a variety of ways, in lots of ways, and I think that we'll be uh, judged for even things that we have failed to do. I think that we will be judged for things that we cannot escape. Uh, like, I can't buy a pair of shoes that probably haven't been made through some kind of improper or unethical process. Mm. And I've seen people become so religious about their environmentalism that they find it impossible and they become extremely legalistic. And I've known some people who've given up on the environmentalism. Uh, you know, they, there was this one guy who came and, and he grew up in a legalistic environmentalist family that were atheistic, but he said that they were more moralistic than Christians. And so he had to get out. And so, um, Anyway, I, uh, I don't know what my point was there, but, um, but I think that we, there will be evaluations differently with, with how we've acted, but, at the, but the ultimate point is how we've been forgiven for <coughs> sin, you know, and then how do we deal with our sins in light of our forgiveness of that sin. I think we have to be careful too as Christians not to uh, take, you know, the whole idea of of our Christianity is to, you know, to get on the right side of God in the next life, you know, to wind up in the right place in the next life, as opposed to like, I think the idea is that we've been saved for a purpose. You know, right. not just about trying to because we've been given a job to do, you know, to reflect God's love into the world. That's right. And um, if we just try to go for the golden ticket, then we can become very lax morally. Yeah, what is, what is the minimum entry requirement? What's that? What is the minimum entry requirement? <laughs> Raising our empty hands and calling on the name of Jesus, but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, however that might be done in our hearts. And just one other quick question. I just wonder, how would you compare original sin with the evolutionary idea of survival of the fittest? Well... I would differentiate the two because survival of the fittest is uh, considered a biological mechanism that enables us to survive, where original sin is this idea that we have uh, betrayed a moral obligation with the creator. But I think that like survival of the fittest is sort of, if you like, it can be, it doesn't have to be secular, but it can be a secular approach to you know what we would call original sin in that like you you know you were saying we're all sort of born you know, into sin we don't even though we haven't done anything wrong at birth right but uh you know one of the biggest issues uh for theologians with the evolutionary theory is not uh not so much um 
Adam and Eve as historical figures, that is a complex question and a difficulty, but the biggest problem, I believe, or the biggest um, challenge is a historic fall. I think we have to hold to a fall in history because otherwise, I mean, we have to hold to this idea that there is an original good creation. Now, there have been people who tried to work around it and say, okay, well, God evolved uh, along certain processes and, and then Adam and Eve became divinely aware or aware of their selves and aware of God, uh, hominids with this divine awareness. Uh, and okay, you can play with it that way. I don't know how scientific that is, but that's done in order to try to say, well, there has to be a moment of the fall. Otherwise, I think we get into real complications if you say that uh, sin and death, um, and not just death, but, but the entry of sin is something that God created rather than a corruption of the good. Or allowed? That God allowed? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, God allowed sin, but it still doesn't, um, that doesn't work around the need for it to be historic, a moment. No, I don't mean it to. No. Maybe it was a perfect world until God got people involved. Anyway, I'll shut up now. <laughs> Choppy waters there, Greg. Okay. <laughs> Great. Okay, we have a qu question from Vincent. 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 Uh, okay, so um, it doesn't make sense just to move on right away. But I was just talking, I was just thinking about, so we need to know sins to know what's good. We need to know need to sins know to know what is good. We need to know bad, we need to know evil to know God. We need to know evil to know God, okay? Well, let's say if we don't know there's a God, but there's no evil. So how do we know? Can there can we know God without evil? If there were no bad and no sin and that thing, no bad. And sin. What would life feel like, and what would it be? So my point is that so ultimately we need all of those evils and sin hmm. because otherwise why do we need those? Just like kind of on marching all day, like hmm. would it, life would be like that? Would it make sense? If okay, so Vince was saying that if. Uh, it seems that we need to know evil and sin in order to know God and goodness and so on. And if we only knew God without evil, then it would be like a morphine trip. Uh, you know. But that's my question. Would it be? I don't think so. I mean, the biblical view is that Adam and Eve had perfect communion. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they were gardening, they were naming animals, so taxon taxonomy, they were having sex. He was writing poetry or at least reciting it. And so there's actually a full human life lived with God because God is not wanting us, because the picture of like a morphine trip would deny that God created us as good humans. Like, and, and it's not as if sin has now given us pleasures, uh, but sin has corrupted the true pleasure of the thing. Okay, so... So Adam and Eve, you said he was still writing poetry. He was writing poetry, yeah. So even though, so I guess by, even though the world was perfect and beautiful, yeah. they, were, he was still, they were still things to do to make, to keep it. So the world so was perfect and beautiful, but 
uh, what's important, and, I, and one of my favorite descriptions of the Garden of Eden is its productivity. God created seeds um, of their kind. That sounds kind of a boring description, but I love it because it means that God is looking at a process that something is planted and it grows and it produces fruit and it grows and it produces. Adam and Eve were supposed to have children to, uh, to steward the earth. Well, they were, that was, that was their creation. It wasn't a result of the fall that they had babies, but they just happened to have babies after the fall, but it's not that they meant weren't meant to have babies until then. So what you're saying, I just want to lose, I don't yeah. want to lose my point. Because no, no. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So now, so they have the seed they're playing that. So if they never buy that apple or whatever. Yeah. Today, because after yeah. that, it went sideways. Everybody would be all respecting. We wouldn't need cups. We wouldn't need, everybody would be, you know. That's would, right. It would be all. No masks. And our money. But we, mm-hmm. but we still have to do some action. That's yeah. right. So had Adam and Eve not eaten the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, yeah. I don't think that they were morally ignorant. Um, and I've heard very good cases that it wasn't that they weren't morally aware. Mm-hmm. Um, they, weren't, they were morally aware. Otherwise, how could God give them commands not to do something? And how could they be aware that they shouldn't do something, even if they misunderstood mm-hmm. um, or overapplied it? So they were morally aware. But, uh, and it was a very active life. Planting trees, having babies, you know. And that's part of the... the as a part of the goodness of creation. So had they never eaten the fruit of the uh, knowledge yeah. of good and evil, it would have continued to develop. And culture would have continued. Okay. And so when we see wheels and music and uh, art and yeah. science and it's all that, that is... Yeah is even though we've now experienced it post-sin, post-fall, it doesn't mean that that wasn't the original intention. And so had they never sinned, that would have continued to develop. Now, some people try to work out um, to get very deep, is to say, well, would Jesus have needed to come? And one ancient theologian said, yes, he would have come, because Adam and Eve were not yet... uh, complete. They were innocent, perfect in their innocence, but not all things had developed to their fullness. Mm-hmm. And so that it helps us with the notion of what heaven will be like, that, that when we are saved in Jesus, we're not called to go back to the garden, but we're called to journey toward the city that has no end, where God will be our light. And so even the description of the New Jerusalem, it hints it harkens back to the Garden of Eden, but it's actually a greater image. And so it seems that that was the trajectory that God meant all along, but it, but it hit the obstacle of rebellion or sin. And so uh, one ancient uh, theologian said that Jesus would have come anyway, but would have brought that to completion without the cross. Now, I don't know how that all works. Um, maybe it would have happened in the incarnation, and that's why some ancient theologians, the incarnation is when Jesus took on flesh. Mm-hmm. But they say the incarnation was the beginning of God's kingdom and not the cross, but, and that the cross was a result of our sin mm-hmm. and the resurrection that he passed through. But mm-hmm. whatever. Um, the whole point is, is that creation started very good mm-hmm. and that all the joys of life mm-hmm. uh, 
babies, gardening, science, culture, architecture, and so on, is not a result of the fall, but a, a result of God's original creation, and that God did not want to derail his purpose that, that creation developed. And so, yeah. And that's a good point, because now I'm working, I do kind of, it's not accurate, I realize, okay, now, because yeah. I realize it's a human being, even if everything is perfect, you don't do anything. You have more purpose, I think. Yeah, it's great. Planting flowers, doing things, composing or part yeah. of the goodness that brings some emotions and feelings inside. Yes. So, and so without doing it, would be, like, that would be the hell would be doing nothing. That's right. If and so, <laughs> that's right. And so, uh, hell in Dante's vision is people being isolated or, um, or C.S. Lewis wrote a book called, um, the great divorce. Mm -hmm. And when he kind of paints a picture of hell, uh, all these people want to, the further, the further or the deeper you get into hell, Napoleon, he considers like the furthest, yeah. uh, is the one who wants to be completely by themselves and they're just talking in a rant going in circles. And, uh, and so he sees isolation as, mm -hmm. as the result of hell and community and flourishing yeah. as a result of heaven. My, I was just about to say, I yeah. don't want to break that, but I've seen people are expecting to break that community connection. That's right. And yeah, COVID has ex expressed or shown that we do lack community. Yeah. Yeah, and that is a part of sin. I think that the moral mm -hmm. that isolation is a result of sin, is the effects of sin. Yeah. Yeah. Solitude is okay, but isolation is not. Focus is more on one powerful man. You look at him. Yeah, no. that's right. No. I'll, see, I'll say like Greg. Maybe I should just shut up. No, it's great. <laughs> great. So I hope you heard all those, or at least heard me. Okay. Uh, anyone else? Liz. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could just go a little bit more into your comments about um, humanity progressively getting better or not. Like, because I was just talking about yeah. Is like, humanity getting better or not? Yeah, I'm trying to say it. It's too complicated. That she sees this awkward trajectory that people so Liz wants me to, to comment further on this, this humanistic notion that humanity is improving, that uh, we see less slavery, more shared resources, uh, and so on. Uh, and that not only one person, one friend, but also several friends hold that kind of notion. And I would say that it's completely, with, with the utmost humility, completely misleading, completely wrong. Uh, because some say that we have more slavery today than we ever had in the history of the world. What we have is sex trafficking and sex slavery and child slavery uh, in larger amounts from what I'm told. I, I don't know this uh, with the stats but more than just um, like uh, agrarian slavery, but that there's much more in, in slavery we see in plain sight and don't recognize it. Um, and then overlook, overlook some of it in fact, like sex tourism in Thailand, 
just overlooks our, our Amsterdam's red light district. Uh, it's, it's servitude. Uh, this humanistic vision, I mean, just look at the 20th century. The more, the more idealistic we had about humanity, the more we contended with world wars, a 20th century invention. You know, it used to be tribal war, massive war, multinational war, but then it became world war. Uh, we have, we have um, misuse of internet, uh, invasion of privacy, um, manipulation of political power is no different than it ever has been. Um, and so when I look at the notion that humanity is getting better, I don't see it. And there, and there's still, I mean, we start, we, we think well of ourselves because we have sent food to some nation far away and think of ourselves great, but there's people on our own streets that starve and are malnourished. And we don't even know the effects of our gifts on those economies because sometimes it maintains them to, uh, to not develop. Uh, or creates war zones within those countries on who gets to resources and how those resources are distributed. And so I, I would say I think it's completely misleading and it's just a narrative that people tell themselves to keep believing in the humanistic narrative. But I don't think that has, it doesn't have much evidence in my opinion. Yeah, so Liz is saying, well, maybe is it just the environment that leads us to believe this kind of narrative because we're not seeing, like, we're not seeing. exactly i think that's true yeah i think that we the movies retell a narrative and movies almost become propagandistic or propagandic uh on retelling us the narrative so we keep believing it but it's really believing a lie because it's not as it is on you know, when I see the ideas of culture being at work in society or in the lives of people, it's far different reality than what I see on the screen. And then what people will go to see on a screen is far different than what they have to see in real life. And some, and also um, what you believe about the world is sometimes reconfirmed. Like it's your worldview is a pair of glasses and it gives you a lens to what you can see. Uh, yes. I think too there might be a bit of um so, so let me, before you say anything, Liz, I just want to clarify what's been said between two people. Um, basically that perhaps it is because of the perception of the worldview that we have that leads us to only see certain things or to see certain things as not detrimental as maybe a Christian word. Uh, so a sex worker wanting uh, advocating for sex rights and saying, this is what I want to do. And, uh, and so seeing the world through a certain lens or uh, people advocating for drug use or safe drug use when actually it can be very detrimental to people. And so there's a perception, there's a shift in perception of what's detrimental by what we believe is moral or immoral. And that's, uh, yeah, so Liz, do you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think you can see that one of her primary values would be like, you know, freedom to make personal choices. That's really, yeah, that's good. Um, so with the idea of 
Um, so going back to her friend who had this humanistic uh, vision for life and that it's getting better. Well, maybe she sees it getting better because uh, she views things through the lens of personal human choices, um, uh, you know, growing. And so uh, perhaps people in our society or our culture are having more and more choices about how they want to live their life. And maybe we see that as progress um, when maybe the Christian would say, but it's detrimental to live in such, in such a way uh, that maybe not all our choices are best choices or good choices or uh, good choices for society. Yeah, I mean, it's very tricky because when we talk about sin and talk about the alternatives, we are really differentiating what we consider good and what we consider evil and what the solution is. Um, the problem I have is that I think that people look for, uh, I don't find a lot of people morally coherent. That what I mean is that they look for a certain amount of evidence to justify their belief, but they're not trying to take into all account. So why even, for example, this humanistic vision that is growing, that people are having more and more personal rights. Well, my question is, why is that better? Uh, you know, we're, we're allowing things in our current culture that has not been allowed through all, his, um, all nations throughout history, or let's say 99.9% if we're gracious, uh, and allowing it to be even similar to what we have nowadays. Uh, that the history of the world would disagree with. Now, maybe we think that that's progress because we're doing something that no other society has done, but ancient societies would judge us as very faulty by not looking backwards. You know, uh, I mean, even Christianity had to prove itself as something old in order to be believed. Because they're like, oh, you're just a new belief. And so they had to justify themselves in ancient Rome as an ancient belief in order to be believed. And so, why do we have this notion that our society, if we are a society where there are no moral constraints or there shouldn't be, you know, there shouldn't be moral constraints, uh, this moral ideology that says there shouldn't be moral constraints, kind of strange, but uh, why, should we, why should we hold our society as more moral than the one in the past when there is no moral grounding? And so I, that's what I mean is the lack of moral coherence. It, it just seems to me a, a lack of coherence. Okay, so let's, let's, take, let's talk about sexual liberation. I should be able to do whatever I want to do sexually. But what, is, but what that ends up being is the increase in pornography. It means the increase in sex slavery. It means the increase in sex tourism. So, yeah, if you're the one who's privileged, it doesn't hurt but you don't see the consequences because you're blind to it, because you keep believing a narrative that you should be able to do what your body desires to do. Um, and, if, and if it's illegal, then let's change the law. Now, I mean, these are complex issues, but I'm just saying at a very, brunt, blue, uh, very blunt way that that's the, that's, the, that's the tension of the argument. Getting worked up here. <laughs> no, but can I, can I, you know, I think maybe in a sense, though, it's not the idea that things are improving, isn't just necessarily, uh, you know, humanistic. 
I mean, in a sense, if you say it isn't improving at all, then you're, you're sort of denying the Holy Spirit of having had any effect over the last 2,000 years. You know, I mean, I mean, where would you rather live? In, in, on Vancouver Island today, you know, or in um, Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? You know, you know, under 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 the Romans. So I mean, I think in the Judeo-Christian world, the, wor the world gradually has been improving. I mean, certainly it's been up and downs, and I I agree with you that all, all we've still got huge problems rampant in the world today. I'm just saying, but I'm just saying when you compare our world today, at least the countries that have a Judeo-Christian heritage, with the with with the countries that run to the dominant power, the Romans which was just, you know, the most of the world that we kind of know about, and, you know, at least in a Christian context, where would you rather be? That's true. Okay, so, yeah, so I'll get into my theory. That, yeah, I mean, I've thought a lot about what does it mean? How has the world changed with the coming of the Spirit? How has the Spirit changed the way we even perceive the world and how we function in the world? And yes, the coming of the Spirit is tremendous. Uh, uh, in a sense, greater than Jesus coming, that Jesus, that God dwells within us, not just within the land of Jerusalem at a certain time, mm. but that God dwells within us and that God is working through us to achieve his purposes in reality. Um, not just us living by a code of law with a small group of people. And so we see the, the, the work of the spirit going out going out into all the nations uh, through, uh, by God's work. But I also want to be careful to say that the world is all great because of it, and that if we just keep waiting, then the Spirit is going to, uh, you know, go to the edges of the earth, and that's how the Spirit will complete the mission. Because what we have in the Bible is that the kingdom of God will come in judgment and that the kingdom of God will come from outside of human activity. And so we can't just be triumphalistic about what is happening now through the work of the Spirit. As we look at the book of Acts, you see that the disciples are told by Jesus that they will go out to the edges, um, um, to Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, Acts is actually a telling of that story of how they go out to the ends of the earth, which is in ancient society, Rome. That's, that's the pinnacle of the end of society. It's not just talking about all these like little islands around the world, um, even though that's, that we can, you know, um, since that can be implied from it, but within the narrative framework of Acts, it's Rome. Paul goes to Rome. Well, how does Paul get to Rome? It is the act of the Spirit. It's the act of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. Well, how did they get to Rome? Through imprisonment, imprisonment through protests, almost breaking out in riots, uh, through conflict with emperors um, and kings, and that Paul ends in prison in house arrest in Rome at the end of, of Acts. But it is, what we always see is that the, the aggression and the oppression of, of Roman society, putting pressure on the Christians, actually spreads them out as they spread out to all the earth. Mm -hmm. And so yet you see the blessing spreading, but you also see the oppression increasing. 
you see them as happening at the same time. And so it's not, it's not only the narrative that things are getting better and better as the spirit moves his people out, but there's also increased tension. It's almost like this, I, I don't know if it's Einstein's theory or whose theory it is, but this, that the, the universe is expanding, but at the same time contracting, something like that. There's, I'm not a scientist, I heard that, and I thought that was pretty cool. So I'm just using it as an analogy. Maybe Melanie knows. But I, I think that that is true of a, a spiritual reality, that as the spirit goes out and as his word is going out, there's also increased um, combat. Yes, Judeo-Christian countries have experienced wonderful things because of the teaching of the Bible, through the um, installment of certain beliefs like inherent, like human rights, um, uh, judicial process of the law, um, or due due process of the law, and these types of things, uh, certain freedoms, written as Bill of Rights. I mean, it's tremendous what North America has done, particularly in America, but you also see that those things can end. Uh, I'm not saying that they're ending now, but uh, but I'm not saying that they're going to last forever. There were other Christian nations in the past who are not where they were. Great Britain, for instance. And there are certainly, um, and when we look at Great Britain, yes, they did a lot of great things. They also did a lot of bad things. So I just don't think that there's a simple narrative of things getting better. Yes, God is at work. He's accomplishing his purposes. We are moving toward the kingdom of God, but at the same time, we're facing struggles like we've never seen before. Well, I'm not saying it's improving in a straight line. You know, it's, it's got, it's got, it, it goes up and it, go, it goes down, but I'm just saying that over, overall, oh, I you, think you see it like well, there's an improvement. Like a stock market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> stock market's crash. Yeah. And also, I mean, I don't think it, 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 it argues against that ultimately it's about God bringing about, you know, a recreation of all things. You know, it's ultimately it's God that does that, but that God uses the, the acts that are done by the Spirit in, in the name of Jesus to, to bring, bring that about. But it's not us that does it, it's God it doing it. also be a coming kingdom that we will not build up, but that will come down. And so yeah. have to remember that we, our participation does accomplish something, that we're able to bring the splendor of the, uh, of the kings and of the nations into the, the new Jerusalem, but we have to remember that that kingdom is what's coming, and it will come in judgment, and it will come in mercy, both and. So and we build for it, but God does, God does it in the God, end. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, okay, good. And so I do believe that God is moving his purposes along and his stories being told toward that toward that end and so we can say progress through the narrative but but this i'm kind of critiquing the the idea of progress as moving up through human achievement you know uh so the tower of babel is not going straight up but it's kind of like going you know we're trying to anyway so we have someone here yes well, just uh, in addition to that i was thinking I like to say in addition to that, so it's just, just that when you said you compare um, if, you know, Jerusalem 2000 year and Vancouver Island, I don't think it's a fair comparison because I think there's lots of people, and even me, I would love to live 2000 years ago and you know, drink their wine and walking around and 
even if there were people getting sacrificed, there's still there's lots of people getting sacrificed now, yeah. today. And then you name a bunch of them, and maybe the technology is getting better, but it's creating a lot of problem and yeah. uh, you know the vibration and people you know, stay more at home. That's right. and now we have that big thing, stay home, you know, and you see that, you know. So I'm not sure, and, and I think it's relative to the. You know, I'm sure there's lots of people that were feeling great back 2,000 years ago yeah. with their spirits filled. The paleo diet. And now you know, we have <laughs> no, but seriously, so. I, I do think that there's lots of people, yeah, that, and um, I think that I would have loved to be there 2,000 years ago. Yeah, so Vince is saying that he's not so sure about your question, Greg, about uh, Jerusalem 2,000 years ago or Vancouver Island today. He, he thinks that Jerusalem might not be too bad. And uh, for a lot of people. And for a lot of people. Yeah. And yeah, and like the increase of technology, I mean, that's a great example. It's like technology, I mean, it's amazing that we can drive. It's amazing that we can fly. It's amazing that we can go out into space. It's amazing that we can send satellites to the far distances of the world, that telescopes and microscopes. And it's amazing all the technology, technological advancements we've made. But we do call them advancements, uh, which is interesting. What makes it an advancement? Usually advancement means that we have more control over nature. That's what we mean by advancement. Uh, but sometimes what we see is that advancement of power is also bad the earth uh you know what we've done with you know the atom bomb you know uh the the atomic bomb they didn't even know its impact they didn't know how big of an impact in all its implications when they pushed the button they didn't know because usually the mantra that we have when we when we yeah. test things is why not or what if and so i, I think that we need to I just wonder if Vince would still like to live in a world where you get stoned to death for, for minor infractions or if, if you have the wrong political point of view, you get crucified. It's true. <laughs> it's true, but uh, it's not like there's not political imprisonment now. But you're right. No. Anyone else? Okay, Melanie. Hold on. Melanie, did you have something to say? Okay. I think um, even in thinking about the trajectory of history and improvement is almost a false argument because salvation isn't about the trajectory of history. It's about inter like, so like a microscope isn't going to save you. Um, better legal protections for people isn't going to save anyone from the judgment of God, um, no matter whether it's a little thing or a, a big thing. Um, and I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, basically the state of our hearts has been the same from Adam and Eve till now we have the spirit with us, but <laughs> at least for me, that doesn't do a whole lot most days. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, I, yeah, I guess that humanistic argument you know, how much is the, um, how much are societal and technological advances going to save you from um, just the evil that is within you day to day as a basis of who you are as a human? That's right. And that's why I think the pandemic is such a wonderful thing to expose that. I mean, Albert Camus wrote The Plague, the French existentialist, and he was basically talking about uh, the stupidity of wars and also the stupidity of pandemics. Like 
he goes, they, met, um, they might be stupid, but they still have a way of getting through. And, uh, but what they end up doing is exposing the false pretense that we have, that our world is as safe and secure and that people are as nice as we think. And that we think that everything's getting better, but it's just because it's not that we're kind, it's because we're actually just happy because <laughs> we have the luxuries. We don't really know the depth of our hearts until something like a crisis comes on us. Um, and so those in Christ should be thankful that that, that sin is exposed so that they can confess that as well and, and move forward. Yes, Brett. I was going to say, I don't think we need to negate what I would call the impact of the gospel on the world. Right. I mean, that have, you know, not only in our hearts, but in society. I mean, you mentioned a few of those things, and I think Greg was heading towards that, thinking of that as well. But the thing is, is that, is that sin is still with us. So maybe it is actually clouding because things are better in so many ways. Like, for instance, the, the, the role of women. I mean, I feel that's the unspoken, um, you know, like, I mean, just think, where are all the contributions? You know, what if women had contributed in the areas of science or music or art in the time, in, in literature, in times past? You know, but they were silenced. They, 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 you know, I mean, this is a real positive thing, but perhaps it clouds our view of sin when we see these positive things Mm. And it clouds our view that the fact is sin is still with us. Mm. And maybe that's the danger, that here we have a blessing from the gospel in the yes. liberation that we yes. have experienced, yes. even the technological advances. But that does not negate that sin is still with us. And it also allows for even greater sins, such as, for instance, the internet, a real blessing. I mean, we've got Alpha, and got here, you know, people doing alpha on the internet this is fantastic and it's because of covid and yet we also have the internet which has allowed pornography so in a sense much greater blessings but also much greater sin yes you know so maybe we shouldn't be knocking the humanist but to say yes this is wonderful and it's had a biblical basis it's a christian basis but look at the evils that are still there so this does not prove that we're perfect that's right i think that's a really good point i can't add to it yeah. did y'all hear that I think so. He spoke well. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to say, not very deep, but just that the way you put it out, the three uh, of nature and nurture, society, systems of society, and secular stops there. Yeah. I mean, I'm in the field of social work. That's all we deal with, round and round and round and round. But we miss this whole aspect mm. of sin component yeah. that sheds a whole new light. It gives it. A, yeah. So mm -hmm. Abigail is just saying that in her studies at UVic, University of Victoria, is that uh, it's just the secular diagnoses that they go, they talk about round and around of nature, nurture, and society or structural mm -hmm. problems and, and ecological, yeah which are real problems and they need to be discussed, but how much we miss when we forget the diagnosis of sin, the root, not just the symptoms, but the root cause. And, and I don't, I think that people miss how profound the doctrine of sin is uh, for helping us understand these symptoms uh, and actually having a solution to these symptoms. Um, 
otherwise we are just spinning our wheels and arguing over empty philosoph vain philosophies, um, even though they offer something important and true, but it doesn't go to the root. Yeah. Okay, people are thanking me, so it means that they're done. Uh, okay, okay, we'll end there. Thank you.